Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now, um, as a way of introduction and basically a little bit of a recap of the first, first um, lesson that we did a few weeks ago, um, the book of Ecclesiastes is a, is a, is a bit of a, a different book <laughs> in comparison to some of the other material that we have in Scripture. Um, it's a book that helps us to, to reflect on our life and check ourselves whether we are heading towards an end where we end up with regret, an end, a life where we look back and say, I wasted so much. And so the book of Ecclesiastes is, I think, a gift from God to sort of um, calibrate us, to help us look at what we are actually busy with and say, am I living a life that is truly purposeful? Um, it's, a, it's a book that, if you read it wrongly or interpret it incorrectly, um, it can be a very depressing book. Um, but that is not the purpose. It is not supposed to be the outworking, even though it sounds depressive, the outworking should not be depression. I think, in fact, the outworking of the book of Ecclesiastes should be the opposite of it. It should be a book that leads you to lasting joy, knowing true joy. It shouldn't bring you down. It's almost as if God, in, in putting the book of Ecclesiastes together, he is trying to use the, for lack of a better term, slap you in your face approach, right? The wake up approach. The, this is what your life is heading to if you exclude God and living for him. This is what it is heading for, to. It is heading to futility. It is heading to meaninglessness. Life is short and things under the sun will never fulfill. So spend your time and energy on things that matter. And that is what Solomon is trying to get at. Last week we looked at in chapter 1 how irrespective of what we do under the sun, that is a key word, under the sun, right? It's limited to things under the sun. This world, this life, nothing transcendent, nothing beyond the sun. If it's limited to that, then our labor, it doesn't matter what we do, life just goes on, nothing is new, nothing lasts, and even wisdom has its drawbacks. And that's what we saw in the first chapter. So Solomon concludes that if you exclude God and all you have is life under the sun, everything is vanity. And that word vanity that he uses, um, he uses to bring across the me, this, this idea of futility, meaninglessness, and often incomprehensibility of life. You look at it, you see all of these things happening, you see how life just goes on and it seems like there's no purpose to it. And that sometimes is very incomprehensible. And that's what he's trying to get at. But as a Christian, we also saw that life under this, we, we may live under the sun, but our perspective should not be limited to that. that, that that's the key thing. We live under the sun, but our perspective should not be limited to it. Why not? And that is because of Revelation. Not the book of Revelation, but God's revelation. It's a message from beyond the sun. It's a message that transcends this life, what we observe, materialism, naturalistic approach to life. It transcends that. It transcends that because it comes from the one who made the sun, the one who makes the sun rise every morning, and the one who is seated above the sun. And that is why life has meaning. Life is meaning not because of anything we do, 
but because of the one who resides above the sun, humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, died on a cross to show us, each and every one of us, that our life is of significant importance, of significant meaning, not because of what we're doing. That's his point. His book is all about what I'm doing, what I'm doing, what I'm doing. It's not about that that gives you a life purpose. It's because the one who is beyond the sun cares for you and has a purpose for your life. And so to know him is what gives our, our existence eternal significance, right? A few weeks ago, Pastor Mike had a lesson about what is eternal life. It is to know him, right? Jesus Christ, eternal life is a person. And so in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, it says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. So how do you live a life that is full and full of joy and purpose? It's by having fellowship with the one whom John is declaring Jesus Christ. So, from that beautiful high note of transcendence and God and purpose because of who God is and because of what Jesus Christ did for us, let's come back down to under the sun in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we're going to look at this realm of, na of this naturalistic world where there is no God. And more specifically in chapter 2, into the realm of what's called hedonism. Hedonism. Now, hedonism is the ethical theory that pleasure, in the sense of satisfaction of desires, is the highest good and proper aim of all human life. Hedonism is the ethical theory that pleasure is the highest good and proper aim of this life. Okay, that's what hedonism teaches, and that is what Solomon is going to be digging into in chapter 2. Solomon tests this theory. You'll see that in, in verse 1 to 3. He basically introduces with that. And he tests, tests it to its full extent. And then he reports back on what this theory of hedonism, does it promise or does it deliver on its promise? And his conclusion is certainly it does not. Now, I would love to go through every verse in this chapter, but we will definitely not finish today. So I try to break it down into manageable chunks. So I'm going to give you the breakdown of this chapter, and then we can get into it. Ch chapter uh, verse 1 to 3 is just an introduction about the topic of hedonism. Chapter uh, verse 1 to 3 is an introduction. Chapter, uh, chapter, 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 verse 4 to 11 is the idea that pleasure, or finding pleasure in materialism, okay? Finding pleasure in materialism. Then verses 12 down to 23 is going to show us that the approach of trying to find pleasure in intellectualism or immaterialism, okay? So the one is, 4 to 11 is materialism, pleasure in that, and then um, uh, 12 to 23 is, is um, pleasure in immaterialism or intellectualism. Uh, you'll see what I mean when we get there. And then lastly, verses 24 to 26 is pleasure in God's providence. Pleasure in God's providence. And that's going to be the key. 
So, if we skip over a few verses here and there, please forgive me. If you have a question about a specific verse, we can discuss it afterwards. That would be a great joy. All right, verse 1 to 3. Let's read it together. It says, I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what is that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. As he did in chapter 1, Solomon sort of starts with a summary, and he says, here is what I sought to do, and here is the conclusion of that pursuit. He says, this is, I'm going to seek after pleasure, mirth. That's what I'm going to look, I'm going to pursue that. And I'm going to tell you what that conclusion is. And he says, this also is vanity. Hedonism says that pleasure is the ultimate goal, but Solomon says that I've tested it. That's the word prove. I've proved it. I've tested it. And um, he says it may result in some laughter, verse 2, but in the end, it also is finite and ultimately meaningless. Which avenues of hedonism did he... Remember, hedonism is just the pursuit of pleasure. Okay? Now, what avenues of hedonism did he take? Well, mirth, that's one. Mirth is a noisy gladness. It is social merriment. It is a high excitement of pleasurable feelings. It's this, this getting together, doing something often silly or not silly, but just this idea that being around people, having this experience of pleasure... That is going to give me lasting fulfillment. So he says that avenue of hedonism, this mirth, that's the one I tried. Another one that he tried, look at verse 3. He says, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine. He, he, he decided to look at this path of, of wine that, that causes numbness or enhances the normality of life. So he says, here's the normality of life. If I use this substance, Maybe it will enhance or it will numb the feelings that I am having. So he says, let me try that avenue. Another one that he tries in verse 3 is wisdom, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom. We'll look at that in verses 12 down to 23. Then another avenue of hedonism or this pleasure that he seeks is maybe this pleasure in folly. That's also in verse 3. Lay hold, um, uh, acquainting my heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly. Now, folly is a very, I found it very interesting when I looked into it. It is weakness of intellect or imbecility of mind. Imbecile. Imbecility of mind. Weakness of intellect. It's also to act in a way that is inconsistent with the dictates of reason. In other words, if you use your mind, if you think about it, this is a good thing to do. But folly is to say, meh. I'm going to go contrary to what seems reasonable. And then also any conduct contrary to the laws of God or man. Any conduct that is contrary to the laws of God or man. So in essence, folly is a stupid, short-sighted, and often sinful way of living. A stupid, short-sighted, and sinful way of living. And the last one, last avenue that he takes down is in verses 4 down to 11, where it's, I'm, it says in verse 4, and I made me great works. He says, I'm going to see if I can find pleasure in my works, in the things that I can do, in the things that I can gather to myself. And so he 
checking all these avenues. It's almost as if Solomon finds himself at a crossroads and he's standing at the center of it and he's got all these paths in front of him and he needs to choose one that he thinks is going to lead to ultimate pleasure and ultimate fulfillment. And so he starts here on the left-hand side and he goes down this one path of pleasure, mirth, and then he realizes, well, that, that road really didn't lead anywhere. It's almost like all of these roads have the sign that says pleasure and fulfillment. And he says, okay, I'm, I, that's what I want. I want pleasure and fulfillment for my life. So he goes down this road. And then he goes down the road of wine. And then he goes down the road of intellectualism and wisdom. And then he goes down the road, road of folly. And then he goes down the road of labor and, and my works. And, and every time he ends up at a dead end. This road leads nowhere. And he stands there at the end of this road. And he says, Some, somebody needs to tell people this. And he comes back. And that's why he's writing the book of Ecclesiastes. He can guarantee you that the end of that road is not fulfillment. And he's, he, he can't change the signpost at the road, but he can tell you it's a lie. Yeah. And so he's trying to warn us that doesn't matter what road of hedonism, doesn't matter what road you're trying to take, it is a dead end. I want to point you to something important in the chapter, and that is the word heart. Look at verse 1. It says, I said in mine heart. Look at verse 3. It says, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine and acquainting mine heart with wisdom. I think this is significant because Solomon, I believe, had a heart issue. The problem was not finding pleasure in life. That's not the problem. But it is that his heart and his affections sought after, and he wanted to, in verse 3, give himself to these things. It's not that any one of these things, it's not that having fun or having enjoyment or finding pleasure in anything is wrong, but if you are seeking that, if that is your objective, and more than that, if you believe that pursuing this thing is going to lead to fulfillment, pursuing pleasure is going to lead to a meaningful life, then your heart is misplaced. And so I think it's important to understand that Solomon's heart was in the wrong place. He had misplaced affections. Keep your place here. I want to show you something in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Misplaced affections. It's a heart problem. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 9 says, but they that will be rich, that is, have a desire to be rich, shall fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish, folly, foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So here's basically what we're seeing happening in Ecclesiastes, right? This is the, this is the warning. This is the, if you desire to be rich, you will, you will go into foolishness and hurtful lusts, and you will depart from the faith. So he's warning that. But look at verse 11. It says, But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold. Listen to that. Remember, he wanted to give himself unto his heart was seeking after all these things in Ecclesiastes. But look at the language here. This is heart language. He says, I wanted to lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called, and hast professed a good profession before many 
witnesses. So, this, instead of laying hold on the pleasures, instead of laying hold on those things, lay hold on that which is good. Lay hold, fight the good fight of faith, right? That's what you need to pursue. And that leads to pleasure, but the thing is, you are pursuing what is good and right. And then the pleasure is the result. That is the important distinguishing factor. Whereas what, what's happening in the book of Ecclesiastes, he is seeking, his heart is seeking after the pleasure, after the things. And that is the problem. We need to seek after something that is noble. Now, before we move on to see to what extent he gave himself over to pleasure in materialism, I think it's good that we ask ourselves, what does my heart seek? Right? I don't think, I think we've all realized that um, New Year's resolutions are probably not the best exercise to do, but the point is, in this year, what does your heart seek? Right now. Maybe that's a better question. Right now. What does your heart seek? Where are my affections? Right? Because where your heart is, where your affections are, that is the road that you're going to follow. And you can proclaim a certain spiritual um, loftiness or some spiritual idea, but the thing is, where's your heart and your affections? Because at the end of the day, that's, that's going to pave the road that you walk on. And so we need to ask ourselves, where is my affections? Um, chapters 4 to 11, oh, chapters, verse 4 to 11. <laughs> I really want to read chapters today. Uh, verse 4 to 11. This is now the first point where we say that pleasure is found in materialism. That's this idea, this, this expectation that Solomon had, and so he's going to acquaint himself with this. He's going to seek after pleasure in materialism. Let's read verse 4 to 10. It says, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards and planted trees in them, all kinds of fruit. I made me pools of water and water there with um, to water there with the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens, and I had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and um, of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of all the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. And I sought great, uh, and I, so, so I was great, and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. So, the extent to which he gives himself over. In verse 4, he, he looks to architecture, engineering. In verse 5, he looks to landscaping and farming. In verse 6, he looks at technology and convenience. He's got this, this water system which was unknown to that day. You know, this incredible water system where he can water his plantations without having to take a bucket and go to a well. He had his own system. He had loyal servants and a willing workforce. He had possessions and he was ranching. He had riches, rare collectibles, music, and not just music, he had the whole band. And the best things that this world could offer. Success and prosperity. And in case he missed something, he puts in verse 10 and he says, Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not 
from me. So if you missed the point, if you, did not, if you think he did not address the thing that you may be pursuing or that you are infatuated by, he says, whatsoever my heart desired, I gave myself to that. I tried it all. And verse 11 says, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on all the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, it was vanity and a vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. It provided some joy, but ultimately it was profitless and was a chasing after wind. Now why? I think Jesus gives us the answer. Have a look at Luke 12. Keep your place. Why was this ultimately empty? Why was this ultimately meaningless? Under the sun. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus says, And I said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. That is exactly what Solomon thought would give him life. Verse 16, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. It's almost like he's writing this about Solomon. And he thought within himself, there again, in my heart, what shall I do because I have no room where I can bestow all my fruits? And he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say unto my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Epicureanism, right? 1 Corinthians 15. But God said unto him, Thou fool, right? Wisdom and folly. Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then, though, then whose shall these, those things be which thou hast provided? Verse 21, this is Jesus' answer. So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So why does Solomon conclude with it is all useless, it is all vanity? Why? Because he was not rich towards God, he was rich towards men. And men die and things die and nothing extends beyond my death. It's all vanity. If it's just under the sun, right? I, I'm not trying to say your life should be meaningless. I'm saying to say your life should be meaningful. Why? Because of God. Because of life beyond the grave. Because it doesn't end with this life. That is why our life has meaning, and now it's not meaningless. We have to be rich towards God, yes. right? Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, yes. not here on the earth where moth and rust corrupts and where thieves break in and steal. Right. Lay up treasure in heaven, and then it won't be meaningless. It won't be futile. It will have purpose. Don't neglect the riches which truly matter. I think here's the point of this entire verses 4 to 11. Pleasure, whether it's material, immaterial, intellectual, experiential, it doesn't matter what form of pleasure, it has the ability to deceive our hearts into thinking that it will provide fulfillment. Right? It has the ability to deceive our hearts to thinking that it can provide fulfillment. I think in contemporary language it would sound something like, do what makes you happy. Right? Do what makes you happy. That 
is the meaning of life. But it doesn't. I think it's a lie from the devil. What did, what did the devil tell Eve in the garden? Right? You will be as gods. Right? You will, you will be a, these amazing creatures. You will finally be set free. You will have purpose and meaning. You'll be as gods. But we know that was not true to the full extent. Yes, they knew good and evil, but that was kind of a bummer. <laughs> More than a gift than anything else. So, don't believe the lie that do what makes you happy brings fulfillment. And I think this idea that, that, that this, this, what, what, this, what Satan told Adam and Eve kind of branches nicely into what we'll read in verses 12 downward about wisdom and, and this intellectualism, this idea that, okay, if it's not something material that's going to satisfy me, maybe it's something immaterial. Maybe it's knowing good and evil. Maybe it's understanding things better. Maybe it's wisdom. Maybe it's the way I approach life. So it's not the materialism, but it's the way in which I approach life, wisely or foolishly. Maybe I can find pleasure and meaning in that. Let's read verses 12 to 16. It says, And I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath, be, um, that which hath been done already? Then I said that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then I said in my heart, As it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart this, that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the, days, uh, in the days to come shall be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? So, in verse 12 it says he turns. And that, that brings me back to that crossroad picture in my mind. He was facing this way, trying these things, and now he turns and he says, okay, it wasn't there, so maybe it's here. Maybe it's in the way I approach life. Now wisdom, I want to say the approach of a wise life, how we to approach life wisely would be something like a careful and thoughtful approach to life which seeks to correctly apply knowledge. A thoughtful and a careful approach to life that seeks to apply knowledge correctly. So you have a desire to do things right. You have a, a desire to think things through and not just do whatever whim you have. It's a thoughtful and a careful approach. That's wise. But folly is a stupid and short-sighted and often sinful way to approach life. I want to say the, 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 the folly or the foolish way to approach it is to say that it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. It just it feels good. That, that, those, are the two, those are the two approaches you can approach life, and some people think that this, this approach, that kind of ignorance is bliss, right? Throw out caution, throw out these reservations, wisdom, just, just do it. Some people think that that approach will lead to pleasure and fulfillment. Others say, that's definitely not the approach. Let's try and do it the wise way. So there's two different approaches to life, and he says maybe pleasure and fulfillment is found in 
taking one of these two approaches. So, in verse 12, he says, I turned myself to behold wisdom. So he, he's observing. He's observing these two opposite approaches to life to see whether either of these two roads perhaps lead to fulfillment. And he records what he observes, what he beholds. The first observation that he makes in verse 13 is that he says, Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. So he says, he admits, that wisdom is greater than folly. Okay? So he's not saying, just be a fool, it doesn't matter. He's saying wisdom excelleth folly in a certain sense. A wise man sees. Okay? Right? A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. But the simple pass on and are punished. So that's Proverbs 22.3. So there's wisdom in the way you approach life. So approach life with wisdom. But notice it's about, the illustration uses about seeing. So in other words, wisdom is better than folly in the area of things that you can control. In the area of things that you can see. I can see that this and this is a bad decision. I can see that this would be foolish. So there is an area in which wisdom exceeds folly. So the, the wise man foresees an evil, he foresees the snare, and he knows how to avoid it. But the fool is blind. He walks without God, direction, and hence he stumbles as he goes through life. It's, it's, almost, it's almost spiritual drunkenness, I want to say. Like if you liken a man who's walking in the darkness and he's drunk, he's, it's better to have light and be sober <laughs> when you are walking. Right? You want to be able to see. Wisdom excelleth folly. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on in his second observation is to say in verse 14, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. I myself perceived also that the one event happeneth to them all. Then I said in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. So, in one sense, folly is wisdom excelleth folly. But in another sense, wisdom and folly are equal. In the area in which you cannot control things. Right? Just because you're wise, it doesn't make you immune to disease. It doesn't make you immune to natural disasters. It doesn't make you immune to man-made disasters. It doesn't make you immune to poverty. It doesn't make you immune to the loss of family or friends. And ultimately, it doesn't make you immune to death. So in the area of things you cannot control, wisdom and folly are on equal playing fields. But where you can see, wisdom excelleth folly. Another way in which wisdom and folly are on equal playing fields is in, in verse 16. He says, For there is no remembrance of the wise more than the fool forever. And I was thinking about this. If I think about people that come up to my mind, like famous people of the past, and I think about someone like Judas Iscariot, <laughs> most people know Judas, the one who deceived Jesus. But they remember him as well as they remember John. <laughs> the one was good, and the one was foolish, or was evil. If you think about people like Hitler and Stalin, right? We all know Hitler and Stalin. We remember them. But 
almost want to say sometimes we remember them better than we remember someone like Oscar Schindler or Corrie ten Boom. Both people who lived in the same period who had, were on the good side of the battle versus the bad side of the battle. But we remember oftentimes even the wicked, what the point is, you will have a, people will remember you, but that's it. it. It's sort of just going to pass on. So, it is on equal playing field. The third observation and the final observation that I'll point out is in verses 18 down to 23. We're not going to read all of that. I'll just read verse 18. It says, Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. So what is the third observation that he makes when he looks at the fool and folliness, uh, uh, wisdom and folly? He says that um, if you work hard to make a name for yourself, only for it to be plundered, once you're no longer the overseer of it, then, well, that's kind of futile <laughs> and meaningless. And this thought actually keeps him up at night. Look at the end of verse 23. It says, His heart taketh not rest in the night. Because, remember, what's so important here is that he is confining his view to under the sun. He is looking at it, and all his affections and his, ple all his, affections and his pleasures are placed under the sun. And there is no life after this, right? The only thing that outlasts you is the stuff and your legacy. So you need to do everything in your power as you are in your final days on earth to preserve your legacy and your stuff. Because that, when you die, those things are still there, so you have to do what you can to preserve it. And he's realizing, I can't because what if a fool picks it up? What if someone's just going to plunder it? So without God, it doesn't matter. And that's what he's saying. It doesn't matter if you exclude God. And this is what happened in Solomon's life, right? Solomon dies, Rehoboam, his son, and Jeroboam get into a little bit of a, a pickle. It's Rehoboam's fight. Why? Because Rehoboam um, says, okay, my dad treated these people not very nicely. Should I treat them worse or should I treat them better? And so he seeks counsel and then he listens to the, the foolish friends, evil communications, corrupt good manners, right? And he, and, he, and he listens to these foolish friends and they say, lay down the hammer. Make it more difficult for them. And so the people split. Ten tribes go north, two tribes go south. Rehoboam reigns over the two in the south. Jeroboam reigns over the ten in the north. And Jerobo Jeroboam says, we no longer have a temple. Let's build up Bethel. Let's build two calves. Exodus. Let's build two calves. Let's pray to these calves. And idolatry starts. That's foolish. That, that's Solomon's legacy. <laughs> and his own son decides to find, gets it right to split the nation of Israel through his pride and ignorance. So, both north and south go into idolatry or away from God, and that is what happens with everything that Solomon did. I wonder if his plantations still were growing. <laughs> I wonder if his water features and everything were still flowing. But all of those things just faded away because a fool took over. But there is hope. <laughs> Solomon, for the first time in this chapter, mentions God. Verse 24. Verse 24 and verse 25 to verse 26. You, the first time you read the word God. 
So he is going from under the sun and he's extending to beyond the sun. And that is where he finds hope. Verse 24 says, There is nothing better for a man than he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat? Who else can hasten here unto more than I? For God giveth to a man that, which, that, that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. So that's what God gives to this man that is good in his sight. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather up, to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and a vexation of spirit. So, even with the realization of the futility and the, the, the finitude of his life, there is still reason to, do, to rejoice. Why? Because God is part of the equation. Because God is part of the equation. It's very important to notice something in verse 24, at the end, it says, um, it says, it was from the hand of God. Right? This is my final point, and it's that pleasure is found in God's providence. It's from the hand of God. Verse 26, God giveth. It is from God. He is the one who gives. And this is, this is very important. This language change is critical, because if you look at verse 10 and verse 11... It says, whatsoever mine eyes I desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. It's me, me, my, I. And here he says, from the hand of God, God giveth. He understands the this, this switch is so important because it shifts your mind from me, 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 what I'm doing, what I'm pursuing to what God is doing, what God is giving me, what God is allowing me to enjoy, what God is providing for me. It, it shifts your God, mind to God's providence. And this is key to finding true and lasting pleasure. See everything in the light of God's providence. See everything in the light of God's providence. If you exclude him, and you know, we often do that. Even though we name the name of God, we often exclude him practically in our life. We, 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 we don't acknowledge him in all our ways. We don't see his hand. We don't, we don't see that this thing I have or this privilege I have or this, this family that I have or this, we don't see it as something that's necessarily from God. We sometimes think, I'm doing this. I'm working for this. Me. And so we, don't, we have to include God's providence in it. We have to accept the reality that nothing in this world will last. And at the end of the day, everything in this world, this world can offer will fade away. But we are still to enjoy it. Why? Because God is giving it to us to enjoy. Not because I am getting, not because me, because God has given me these things to enjoy. So enjoy it. Not because you're something amazing, but because of who God is and what He is allowing you to, to have. Don't let these things, these pleasures become your master. Don't let them rule over you. Because then that's futility. That's what's happening in chapter 2. He's given Himself over to those things. He's given His heart to that. But if you see it, it's God who gives. It's from the hand of God. You see it in that light, and it's not your master. Enjoy it. So in chapter 2, he tested this hedonism theory 
And pleasure was clearly not the purpose of life. Whether it was material, experimental, immaterial, doesn't matter. So the question is, is pleasure bad? If it's your pursuit, yes. But if it's the result of your pursuit, a noble pursuit, then it's not bad. So like with Solomon, it's a question of your heart. I think Jesus said it best in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? And his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Where is your heart? Is it set on God? Or is it set in finding fulfillment and pleasure in the things this world can offer? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much. Um, thank you for this book that truly shines such a light on everyday life. Um, Lord, help us to see things in, in the light of your providence, to see things in the light of um, who you are, Lord, um, to extend our sight beyond the sun and not just keep it here in this life where nothing lasts and um, everything fades away, Lord. We want an eternal vision, an eternal purpose, and we find that in Christ. Thank you so much, Lord, for that privilege. And um, Lord, help us to live with that in the front of our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.